of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we glorify you. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Word. We thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to you now as we seek to be attentive to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, as you know, it's Trinity Sunday, um, so we're, we, we've paused our I Am series just for one more week, and I want to come back and finish that next week um, with Jesus' beautiful statement, I am the vine. Um, but on Trinity Sunday, we intentionally think about the triune nature of the God that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who is Lord and creator of all, the Son who is the Savior and Redeemer, eternally begotten of and of one being with the Father and the Spirit who is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds both from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, one true and living God. On Trinity Sunday, one of the things that we're doing is we're celebrating the mystery of the Trinity, that God is both three and one. Three distinct persons who are all co-equal and co-eternal, making up the one Godhead. And mystery, just to say, in the Christian tradition, isn't a problem that needs to be solved. It's not a negative thing. It's something I want to suggest that should be celebrated, and that our dear Eastern brothers and sisters have been very good about this, about celebrating it as part of the reality of what it means for us as created human beings to worship the Creator God. Mystery comes with the territory of being finite human beings with limited capabilities and limited capacities, who have been invited into relationship with the eternal God who is the source of all things, who has no beginning and no end, who spoke creation into existence, who is both the source and the summit of all things. It would only be hubris that would allow us to think that we can fully know and fully comprehend the eternal and almighty God. So mystery isn't negative per se, it's a recognition of the fact that we aren't God. And as we've been saying every week in Psalm 100 or the Jubilate, be assured that the Lord, He is God. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. What a beautiful declaration that is to make week after week, is it not? Mystery recognizes that distinction. But it also celebrates the fact that this holy and other God has graciously revealed Himself to us and invites us to know him and enter into relationship with him. We cannot fully know and fully comprehend him, but that does not prevent us from knowing him and loving him and serving him to the extent that we are able because he has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do today as we celebrate Trinity Sunday together is to look at all three of our passages and just sort of pick, consider one or two of the characteristics that they reveal about the triune God. Um, and allow that to draw us into worship of him. So the first is the Exodus passage, uh, which Melanie read so beautifully for us today. And as I was reflecting on it this week, there were two characteristics that came to mind for me. The first is God's awareness of his people's struggle and his willingness to act. I love the way that Exodus 2 ends, which sets up, of course, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush in Exodus 3. It ends with these words. This is verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So these are the days in which Moses is living in Midian. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And I just love that last line especially. God saw the people, and God knew, period. I think that's such an important thing for us to be thinking about, the very fact that God sees us and knows us. That's part of the characteristics of the triune God. He sees the challenges that we face. He knows the struggles that we endure. He sees the joys that we encounter. He knows the challenges that we face and the difficulties that we go through. God sees and God knows, and in his seeing and in his knowing, he acts on behalf of his people. He calls Moses while Moses is is tending flock in the wilderness. He gets his attention through the burning bush. He reveals himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he calls Moses to go and act on his behalf to go and rescue his people. So God sees, God knows, and God acts. And what struck me most about it as I was thinking about this this week was God's readiness, the readiness that he displayed to listen and act on behalf of his people. In the ancient world, worship revolved, of course, around sacrifice. And sacrifice, in many ways, was sort of this um, hopeful, this act of hopeful appeasement. I hope Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear. Oh, wonderful. Friends, I'm amazed that it's taken this long for this to happen. It's been over a year that we've been on Zoom, and this is the first time I've been kicked off mid-service. So uh, praise God for that. I don't know how far I was um, as I was sharing. I don't know when I got kicked off. I turned over and I was gone. So um, I won't put anybody on the spot and ask you to tell me. But what I was thinking about was the very fact that um, I was saying that in the ancient world, um, the act of, of worship was this act in which y- y- people weren't sure if their gods were listening to them. And what I was thinking about this week, I don't know if any of this or not, but what I was thinking about was um, the scene with Elijah and uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And you have this moment where the, the prophets are calling out to their gods for hours and hours the text says in 1 Kings 18, limping around the altar. They're getting tired because they've been doing it for so long. And then Elijah begins to taunt them, and he says, cry louder. Maybe Baal's just amusing himself. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. Cry louder. You have to wake him up, perhaps. So they cried louder, and they start cutting themselves. And it says there's blood gushing all over the place. But what verse 29 says in 1 Kings 18 is this. No one answered and no one paid attention. No one answered and no one paid attention after all of that. And then Elijah steps up. He builds an altar to the Lord. And he even invite, he digs a trench around it. He invites people to take water and pour water in the trench and pour water over the altar. He prays to God and God sends fire that consumes um, the offering. But the question that I ask as I, as I think about that scene is, what gives Elijah that kind of confidence in the Lord? Of course, he knew that he worshipped the one true and living God and that the Baals were simply idols, you know, carved by hands. But what gave him that kind of confidence? And I think it's stories like Exodus 2 and 3. 
It came from a knowledge that as we hear in Exodus 2.25, God sees and God knows and God acts. 1 Kings 18.29 says that no one answered, no one paid attention to the prophets of Baal because Baal is a false god and doesn't actually exist. But Elijah knew that God sees and God knows and God acts on behalf of his people because he knew this Exodus story. And so I think that's the first characteristic that stood out to me as I was thinking about the trying God whom we worship this week, that God is aware, that he knows what we're going through, he knows what's going on, he sees, he's paying attention, he's not distant, he's not far off, and he acts on behalf of his people. So maybe you want to take a moment and think about past ways that you have experienced that in your life where God has acted in your life in moments that you need when he saw you and he knew and he acted. Maybe you want to take some time today or this week to think about those places that you want to know that God sees. You want to know that he sees this thing and he knows what's going on and you want to ask him to act. There's something specific that you need him to act in in your life this week or right now. God sees God knows and God acts. I think that's something to bring before him this week. Another characteristic that we see in this Exodus 2 and 3 passage is that he's patient and gracious with us. He doesn't force himself upon us, but he gives us the space that we need. One of my favorite lines in Exodus 3 is verse 4, which says, When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see the burning bush, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. But the implication there is that Moses had a choice. Moses could have walked on. He didn't have to turn to investigate what was going on with the burning bush. I love that. I love that God gave Moses the space to choose for himself. They didn't force himself upon Moses. Makes me wonder how many other times Moses might have actually walked past a burning bush and how many other times God would have done something like that to get his attention because God is patient with us. That's part of the character of God. He's patient. He's gracious. He's gentle with us. All of those characteristics are worthy of our time and consideration this week. Maybe you need to think about a time in your life that you are particularly grateful for God's patience in your life, where he gave you the time and the space that you needed. He didn't rush you. He didn't force anything upon you, but he was gentle with you. He was tender with you. He was patient with you. I think that's worthy of our consideration as well this week. As we turn to Psalm 93, um, the characteristic of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that stands out to me most is his sovereignty and his steadiness. We don't know what the exact historical context for Psalm 93 is, but it centers around a disorienting experience, either for the people of God corporately or for the psalmist uh, as an individual. Whatever it is, we don't know exactly what it is, but the psalm centers around this feeling of being overwhelmed. Verse 3, which is the center of the psalm, says this, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Scripture, the waters and especially the floods are symbols of evil and chaos. 
So the description here is of some sort of overwhelming challenge that the psalmist is facing or that the people of God are facing together. And of course, we can understand this psalm. All of us have felt overwhelmed, I'm sure, at some point in our lives or maybe even some point in this past year. So you can understand the description that the psalmist offers, this description of water feeling like it's just mounting and going to crash over you, that you're surrounded by this wall of water and it's going to overwhelm you, that there's no escape from it. That's sort of the depiction that we get in verse 3. But what's so beautiful about this psalm is that even the structure of Psalm 93 reveals something, that we see this painful experience which feels like we're surrounded on every side by it. But when we look at Psalm 93, we realize that verse 3 is actually in the center of it. We see that that painful situation, that disorienting situation, is actually surrounded by the sovereignty and power of God. Verses 1 and 2 on one side say, The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. That's on one side. And then on the other side is verses 4 and 5 that say, Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So not only is it the the words of this psalm that remind us of the sovereignty and reality of God, that the Lord is mightier than any floods and, and challenges that we face, that he is reigned and robed in majesty, that he'll never be moved, that his throne is established from of old. But even the structure of this psalm, this is what I found so beautiful this week, even the structure of the psalm itself conveys this reality. That the evil waters of verse 3 are are contained and swallowed up and surrounded by the sovereignty and majesty and glory of God. This is the confidence that we need to have as we face challenges in this life. That no matter what we face, no matter how overwhelming the, the situations might feel, no matter how much it feels like those floodwaters flood are just rising and they're going to cave in over us and that's all we can see, we still need to know that God is sovereign, that God reigns, that God is stronger, that he is greater, that he's robed in majesty, that he's mightier than the flood, that his kingdom and his throne have been established from of old. They shall never be moved. The Lord himself is forevermore. Nothing can change who he is, his steadfast, steady nature. So I think as we face times of difficulty and challenge in our life, this psalm reminds us of the sovereignty and power and steadiness of God. And I've been reflecting on this psalm for over a year, uh, thanks to Pam, who shared this psalm with me very early on in the pandemic. I have found it extremely comforting over this past year. So what I would invite you to do, uh, just take a moment maybe to imaginatively reflect upon this psalm, Psalm 93, and picture, if if you're feeling overwhelmed by something right now, I would invite you to picture that thing. 
to imagine that painful situation or that loss or that hurt that you're dealing with or that fear that you're dealing with, to picture it in your mind and like Psalm 93, to see it surrounded on all sides by the power and sovereignty and steadfastness of God. To see him over that thing, robed in majesty, putting on strength as his belt. To see him seated on his throne, which has been established from of old, from before creation. Ruling over all things. Superintending history. That he's trustworthy. That his kingdom will last forever. That he is right now in the process of making all things new. Nothing can thwart his plans and his purposes and his love. Just take a minute and picture the sovereignty and power of God. The triune God is over any of those challenges that we face. Even those things that feel like they completely surround us, they're all we can see, he surrounds those things. He is greater than those things. And then as we turn to our John passage from today, one of the things I was struck by was that you see it actually starts very similarly to the Exodus passage with Jesus knowing He knows what's going on. He's aware of what's in the hearts of mankind. Only in this John passage, there's a more somber tone to Jesus' knowing with him not being willing to entrust himself to people, even those who have chosen to follow him, because he knows what's in their hearts. But the two characteristics that struck me about this John passage are first that God is love, as John, of course, says, and John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's out of God's love for us that he sends the son. But what's so striking about that statement is precisely the fact that John has made it right after this ominous statement of chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind or humankind. Jesus didn't entrust himself to those who were turning to him because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they would leave him, that they would abandon him, that they would participate in his crucifixion. But the beauty is that he was still willing to go and be crucified. That's the glorious nature of God's love. As Paul said, but God shows his love for us, this is Romans 5.8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the glorious nature of God's love. Christ knows what's in the heart of mankind. He knows what's in our hearts. Yet even with that knowledge, he still moves towards the cross that we might receive the rescue that we need. And he does this because of his great love for us. And finally, we also see that God, the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord, the giver of life, 
has been given to, given to us in order to bring about new life in each one of us. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows that we are bent towards evil, but that's not the end of the story, thanks be to God. Because he loves us, he redeems us, he's merciful to us, he sends the person of the Holy Spirit in order to bring about new life in each one of us that we may be born again. Born of the Spirit, enabled to live the life that God is calling us to live. Not a life that's absent of challenges and struggles, but a life that is true life, eternal life, real life, even in the midst of all the challenges that we face. Kingdom life. And so that's the final characteristic that we see of God in this past, these passages. He's also the one, about, the one who brings about new life in us. So maybe one of the things to consider today is um, how has God been bringing about that new life in you? What has he been doing in your life recently to bring about new life? Life of the Spirit. What changes has he brought about? Not just recently, but over time as you look back over your life. How do you see the ways that he's forming you and shaping you to be more and more like his son Jesus? What fruit has he been producing in your life? Has joy been growing? Has gratitude been growing? Love, peace, patience. Self-control. Gentleness, kindness. Are you seeing the fruit of of the Spirit growing in your life, bringing about new life within you? Maybe take some time to reflect upon that this week. Just give thanks to God for the work that he is doing. So those are some of the characteristics of the triune God whom we serve, who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who has created us gives us life, that he knows us, that he's sovereign, that he is loving, that he is life-giving. So I would ask you, what else would you add to that list as you think about the triune God? What other characteristics come to mind? When you think of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what other characteristics would you add to that list? How has he met you? How has he been working in your life? Think about how he's been drawing you unto himself and shaping those characteristics into your life by the work of the Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.